Welcome, Digital Wildcatters. I guess it's good afternoon, although this is going to drop Tuesday morning, but it's Monday afternoon. And, uh, you know, guys, on a weekend, on like a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning, wake up, last night's kind of foggy. A bad day is when you tweet it, you know, texted an ex, someone you're trying to date or something. That's a bad day, right? A good day is when you wake up and you didn't text anyone the night before. I think a great day is when you wake up and you see Saudi Arabia cutting oil production. <laughs> oh, shit, that, right into was that, it. Was that our weekend? What all of a Sunday morning. Oh, yeah, so tell us about it, Mark. It didn't have to be Thanksgiving. Um, OPEC in a somewhat surprise announcement, OPEC Plus announced a uh, production cut starting in May f- through the remainder of the year in addition to the 2 million barrels a day that they announced last October, uh, totaling for OPEC 1.15 million barrels a day, and when you add in 500,000 barrels a day expected from Russia uh, to come off the market, about 1.65 million barrels a day. So, you know, the market has taken this as maybe not quite the degree of surprise that we saw back in Thanksgiving of 2014, but clearly um, got the market's attention. And I think in the face of a slightly oversupplied market looking at inventory performance through the year to date and then thinking about where we are seasonally with um, the shoulder between winter and and summer driving season um, with refinery turnarounds starting, you know, maybe a more explicit signal that they are going to step in and try to stabilize and manage the market. I've been trying to think through this. Um, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I guess economics would say you, you, you cut production and oil prices are supposed to go up. And the question is, is what are you going to use all that cash for? Well, Saudi Arabia has been super clear that um, they're not actually going to build um, additional production capacity. And that's usually like, I'm going to save a lot of cash so I can go, you know, spend CapEx on on building out more capacity. They're actually saying that they're not going to build capacity beyond 13 million barrels a day. So my question is, are they saving money? Do they see something that we're not seeing? Are they saving for the nuclear winter? Ooh. Because it is like, they're cutting production in a massive way, and they're not using that cash to like take market share. They're... What are they doing with the cash, Mark and Chuck? Well, you know, the, uh, the, the prince has talked about his vision of transforming Saudi Arabia beyond hydrocarbons and all. We've so. been talking about this for literally a decade. Yeah. No, we've been talking about that for a long time, so maybe there's part of that. I think it's more just kind of his erratic behavior, you know, in terms of personality. And every day his power grows and... He gets away with stuff, and this is just, I think this is just an F you to Biden, right? I mean, you were supposed to buy barrels to fill the SPR back. You're not doing it, or you came over here and you kissed my ring and F you for this or whatever. So I don't, that, and I guess anytime you see a six handle on oil, you're just, screw it, we're going to cut cut volumes. Yeah, I, I don't know what, you know, precise target would be, but kind of 80 as a floor feels right based on the dynamics that we've seen play out here over the last little while post-COVID. And so, 
you know, we did talk about last week the Saudis and China inking a couple of refining pet chem deals that are pretty significant. That's in their budget, yeah. Right. And so, you know, is this just more, I think Dan Pickering tweeted yesterday, is this, you know, are they playing chess or checkers? Maybe this is putting a pause on the long long game of chess that they've been playing and playing a little bit of checkers now for fun, right? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. It does, it does go to this point, though. They are comfortable now that the United States can't ramp it back up. I mean, that's that's that's, that's that is that's the market share yeah. threat that doesn't loom nearly as large today as it did, you know, five, seven, eight years ago. I mean, there's a lot of things the Shell Revolution brought, but the one thing that was super interesting is everyone looked at the United States as as like you are the producer now. You have the control. In fact, every foreign oil and gas company set up offices in Houston. It looks like the the pendulum swinging right back to OPEC in terms of who has who's the controlling. These are not state decisions. These are private company true traded, but private company investor based decisions or investor priority type decisions as to whether or not you're going to ramp CapEx back into a market opportunity. And we've seen, you know, just continued discipline out of the sector. A lot of other impediments and challenges related to inventory and supply chain, et cetera. But this is, you know, this is more of the same that we've seen for the past several quarters. Uh, we're just going to continue to keep a lid on spending and, and reinvestment increases because we want to continue to return capital to shareholders. And so, you know, o OPEC knows what's going on. The Saudis know what's going yeah. on. There, there's not this big immediate market share threat. Besides them saving cash for a nuclear winter, which you heard it here first, by the way, I have two, I I have two other theories. One is, you know, this Thursday's Energy Tech Night in Wednesday. Denver. Wednesday. Is it Wednesday? Wednesday? Oh, that's right. Um, Wednesday. You'll be listening to this Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. because it's, it, I know everybody listens to it the moment it comes, comes out. out. So Wednesday night in Denver. in Denver. And then Thursday is, you know, arguably the world's greatest sporting event of the year and it's the Masters. So, so maybe the Saudis are cutting production, even though they're backing live. They're, they're cutting production to watch their live golfers play in the Masters because Greg Norman has said, that if one of the live players wins, the, all the live players are going to surround them on the 18th green. So, I'm throwing that out as a potential theory, and uh, I could be could be right. World's greatest sporting events played in October, and it's actually called the World Series. Has <laughs> That's world, not a game. Has, has world in its its name. So uh, the yeah. hardest sporting event in the world to get into the Masters. So, but. Uh, Maybe. <laughs> now, one other, one other point, though, is that, that I kind of bring up, and, and I, I'll ask a two-part question on this. Sure, you know, oil's up, whatever, 8% today. We've got an 8-hand, 5%, whatever it is. Right. We've got an 8-handle on WTI today for the first time in a while. You look out, the 48-month strip hadn't even moved. So... One, this is a this is a trading short term type thing. To your point earlier about inventories, so that's kind of question number one. Taking that as as what's going on, is this really? We're moving into you, you guys were saying we're moving into OPEC driven oil. 
are we actually moving into demand-driven oil? Because isn't all of this stuff going on, uncertainty about demand? Are we heading into the Great Recession? Are all our banks going to collapse? Is China beyond COVID? Is that more important today than uh, than uh, OPEC? Mark would say, yeah, I, have an, I definitely have an opinion on this. Well, I, I think it's been more important here in, in the recent past as we've dealt with you know, larger macro issues with respect to banking and, you know, looming recession. We we talked in the not too distant past about dodging the recession bullet in Europe because of, of warm weather. But I do think that, you know, until yesterday, the the primary driver of really how we think about what's driving the energy market, what's driving the crude market in particular, has got much more to do with broader macroeconomic issues than than energy fundamental specifics. And I think now we're re-engaging the energy fundamentals conversation, you know, whether it's a supply or demand issue uh, remains to be seen. I mean, one of the concerns that, that I read a couple of uh, analysts were, were talking about, if OPEC overplays its hand, it might push demand even further out because people will start buying electric vehicles and blah, blah, blah. But part of me thinks that they're, 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 they're whipsawing the United States because I'm watching other moves. Like China is clearly winning the race for lithium and, and for like the energy transition we're watching. And I don't know if the salaries are behind or not, but, but if I'm looking at things like China is basically vertically integrating the supply chain for energy transition. Like if you look at, they're already the number one producer of lithium and, and have the, uh, the, the capacity to refine lithium, but now they're buying mines in China. I mean, in in Africa, and they're vertically integrating like they did in the con, in the computer and the electronics industries decades ago. Um, I think you know, to me, if we sort of took a more macro view of this, maybe the Saudis are they're looking to diversify. Yes, but they're partnering with others besides the United States to do that. It looks like there's some more clever moves maybe that are much further out that we can't see today, but I think is playing into this. It's my gut. They are playing chess, in other words. Yeah. I still go back to this because I say this all the time, and I, I, I started saying this to investors in kind of 2019, even pre-COVID, I think OPEC is kind of maxed out on what they can produce. I mean, do they have some excess capacity? Yes, they mm-hmm. have some. I don't mean an absolute. But the days of having, you know, 20% of, of you know, their daily production and excess capacity behind a spigot is just way over. And I think they even <laughs> talk about 3 and 4% of their, of their uh, or 3 or 4 million barrels a day in excess capacity even they've stopped talking about that too it goes to our point that we've talked about earlier or that we've talked about previously on this show is we just haven't invested in a lot of oil you know it's yeah there's not a lot of excess capacity out there there there's hmm. I, I guess there's one school of thought too is you know i haven't seen any major adjustments to the notion that at least from the iea we're going to see 102 million barrels a day of demand later in the year, global demand. And so, 
you know, in a period where um, we've had slight oversupply coming into the year, nice inventory builds if you're a consumer, right, and and nice downward price action, um, is taking some of that at least from a, a paper standpoint back off the market. There's that wedge added back to the ledger in, in spare capacity. Does that help some of the anxiety in the market around whether or not there's sufficient spare capacity that, you know, your, your spigot uh, example or metaphor for what's readily available? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think as a comparative in 1986, we were at 68 million barrels a day globally. OPEC had 14 million barrels a day of spare capacity. That, you know, we're certainly not going back there. It's going to be in low single-digit millions, I think, in, in terms of practically available capacity. So creating some headroom during a shoulder period when inventories are in better shape and maybe getting back in that window of, of target pricing, um, you know, they see a lot, too, in terms of demand and, and customer sensitivity to prices. So it's, it's a mix of things. All right. So we got to get out. Let us all be the pogo stick that is Goldman Sachs commodity research. I mean, what, three weeks ago? No, we're going to 60. Oh, we're going to eight. Whatever. That must be a nice job. Just watch the forward strip and and uh, and uh, pogo stick around on it. Where are we into the year oil prices, Mark? I think we're... I think we probably have a nine handle. Oh, low nineties. Wow, I'm going low. I'm saying there's going to be a, a big recession. I think it's going to come to a halt over the summer. Something's going to happen. I don't know what it is, but I just like I don't think we're not bullish this year. I think we're heading into or or continuing to be in recession. It's going to drive downwards, which is going to pull demand down. So I'm saying sixties. Sixties. I'm kind of in your camp as well. We've been sitting here arguing as an industry that we haven't invested in oil. OPEC is producing all they can, yada, yada, yada. And now they're having to cut to get price to go up. That's not good. And the rig count is still 75% of what it was pre-pandemic levels, unlike the U.S. So they're clearly slow playing this, and maybe they see something we don't. But I do think that they're being fiscally conservative and smart. Um, and that, to me, doesn't bode well because I think on the demand side, uh, I don't see a lot of great things happening in the market. The scary thing for me is Saudi Arabia is giving off the vibe that they're going back to being invincible again. And that's never good for the world. But anyway, all right, question number two, or issue, uh, topic number two. Oventive made a big announcement uh, today. Uh, buying $4.3 billion worth of assets from NCAP. They basically rolled up a bunch of NCAP's uh, Northern Midland Basin um, assets. It's, oh, which one of the companies are they? I'm missing this. Oh, it's Black Swan, it's Petro Legacy, and Piedra. And also as part of the deal, NCAP is buying Oventive out of the Bakken. And so, let's talk about I, this. I, I think this was a, still a, is still a rumor. It hasn't been confirmed. Uh, I, I think uh, Oventive has announced. Oh, they have. Yeah, they, okay, they, they, they well, announced. I, 
that was in the last hour or so. We're in very a, current here on BDE. Chuck is real time. Real so. time. All right, Mark, you got thoughts on this? Um, you know, I think it's more, um, I, I think it's more of kind of a, a turnover of the portfolio for NCAP. And, That's what I think. You know, as they contemplate raising new upstream funds that they haven't raised since 2017, so recycle some liquidity and let's get after raising the new fund. That's what I see. That's what I think it is. You know, it's Midland base and it's a good, you know, it's a good uh, set of assets for Aventive if they're going to reallocate and more concentrate capital in Permian Basin. Um, you know, good neighborhood. I think I think most of the acreage is in Martin County, if I re remember correctly. Now, y'all are missing the takes on this. One, Oventive. Has there ever been a worse set of acquisitions ever in a company history? I mean, they bought Kerr McGee out of the Eagle Ford <laughs> back in 2014. They paid top dollar for Athlon. They bought Newfield and... 2019, so just a murderer's row of really bad deals, number one. So even though their stock's up today, so kudos to Aventive for having stock price go up today on the announcement of this deal, I got to think it's going to be horrible. These guys had their peak stock price, $243 a share back in March of 2008, and they're at $39. I mean, clearly, clearly underperforming. Clearly underperforming. The best tweet I saw about this is uh, somebody was saying, what do you think about this deal? Somebody tweeted back, I'm going to ask my doctor if Oventive is right for me. <laughs> <laughs> they actually, so not only have they done this murderer's row of really, really bad deals, I believe they spent over a million dollars coming up with that name too. Of course. Whenever you spend money on a name like that, you know you're already wasting capital. Yeah. But kudos to NCAP for getting a deal sold. I mean, yeah, it's, they, it's they're going to get stuff done. Yeah, no, yeah, I'm coming back. I, Mark and I are still on the same on the right on the right line, though. I mean, they've got to recycle some liquidity. Oh, yeah, no, and NCAP was always the best of kind of all of my competitors of sending money back on a very regular basis. They were always very disciplined about that. How much are we sending back this year? What companies are we going to sell to do it? And and investors appreciated that. About yeah, I wrote an article years ago about about funds, and I was thinking, you know, what, what do investors care most about, ROI or cash-on-cash cash return? I'm like, they like cash-on-cash. Cash. They want cash back in their pockets. So if you can do that well, maybe you can raise more money. Yeah, no, that and, and they were the kings at it. So kudos to, to NCAP. All right, as I texted you guys this weekend, my European girlfriend has chastised us, and she's all big fans of, of everyone at this table. She's not European. She's British. She's British. <laughs> Fair enough. By the way. American. Yes. And also American. Just, just, yeah. Okay. Fair, fair, fair enough. Chastise us somewhat because what we have a tendency to do when we talk energy is we lump all of Europe together. So we talk about Europe did this, Europe did that. And in fairness, Europe can make up anywhere from, what, 20 to 30 different countries and all of that. And so what I thought might be good for us to do 
is as a recurring segment on BDE is let's highlight an individual country in Europe each week. And we'll just talk a little bit about that country and how it contributes. Because in fairness to the girlfriend, Germany is very different than Greece, which is very different than Spain. All right. So let's start with Germany. Biggest economy in, uh, in Europe. Mark, what say you about Germany? What do we need to know about them? Well, they rank fourth globally in GDP, so it's big. And I, what I found interesting was they're only 18th in per capita GDP. Um, it is the most populous country in the EU and second only to Russia and Europe, 84 million people. They're seventh in the world in primary energy consumption and the fourth largest coal consumer globally. And I think what we really want to spend time on is what they've been about for the last decade plus mm -hmm. in terms of uh, energy transition, and I'll let you pronounce the official name of that policy. But real quick breakdown on their electricity generation uh, as a as another thumbnail. Coal provided 31%. Uh, 20% of that was lignite. Uh, wind and solar were right at 32%. These are 2022 statistics. Net gas at 13, and then uh, biomass and nuclear down at seven and a half and six and a half. So <clears throat> you you've had a country that you know clearly was central to the discussion last year and ongoing with respect to the uh, energy crisis that passed without too much uh, extreme pain because of the the, the warm winter. But it also brought into clearer focus what, you know, what the different pace and government policies and attitudes uh, so, uh, from a society standpoint. And, and Germany is probably the best best place to start, um, just just given all the dynamics that are at work here. Yeah, and let's put it in perspective for for your girlfriend and for others, our listeners. Is Germany is about annually is about 4,000 terawatt hours in, in terms of their energy consumption. All of Europe combined is about 11,000 terawatt hours. So they're basically 35% of all of Europe. So you can't really talk about Europe without really talking specifically about Germany. So, and they're kind of the poster boy for the transition, right? Because, I mean, they passed their Renewable Energy Act in the year 2000. Mm -hmm. You know, so... 23 years. It's called Energy Wind Day, if I say that right. I think you did. Uh, Mark, was, said, Mark sent me a little video of how to pronounce it, and I didn't have the uh, the heart to do it. But, no, I mean, what that did is that basically tariffs and priority to renewables. It also said we're going to phase out nuclear. Then you start the energy transition, the Fukushima nuclear disaster, you know, riles up Germany, and they accelerate the phasing out of nuclear, they said they took eight plants offline almost immediately, and then everybody else was going to be offline by 2022. And uh, then they, I mean, and they doubled down on this. So they, they kept going. They recently passed the Climate Protection Act, which says carbon neutral by 2045, reduce emissions by 65% by 2030, phasing out coal. Uh, yeah. And they're talking about uh, doing that by, you know, 2030 or 20, 2025. So they've done that all the while sucking off the tit of Russia, of Russia. natural gas through, uh, through 
I, here's just like a, a personal question because Germany has what their their deposit of coal in country is is pretty large, right? Right. Huge. It's huge. It's huge. And and they produce since 2018 they produce no more met coal because the economics, which is used to make steel and other things, right? Um, which I do a lot of. So you have a shit ton of natural resources that you can use, and it's dirty. It's actually lignite coal, so it's actually kind of, it's it's one of the dirtier fuels to burn. But you're saying, I'm not going to use my own resources, and we're going to buy more expensive resources from somebody else. Does that make sense? It sounds great. We all were buying into it as like, we all want to save the planet. But does that make sense? And we're seeing sort of, What's happening to Germany now? Yeah, and Mark and I were looking for this, and we weren't able to find good statistics. And I'm sure they're they're out there, but you know they were they had upwards of sixty percent of uh, of their energy coming from Russian natural gas through Nord Stream. Obviously, that gets blown up. They've replaced it by bringing in natural gas from who was it France and. Mostly Norway and New Holland and scrambling to, to get four floating LNG facilities online. And they have no fixed uh, LNG regas terminals yet. Whether whether any proposed, I think there's one proposed on the, or desired on the North Sea coast, but I don't, I, I don't know kind of the timeline there. But they were in a they were in a pretty big scramble, as we all know, last winter to secure a lot of spot LNG and uh, replacement supplies for what they lost from from Russia. And the pogo stick that is Goldman Sachs that we talked about earlier last summer had German recession high likelihood, and it was basically based on energy prices because they were through the roof last summer, and then we have the warm winter. So they wound up avoiding a recession. I think the the economy grew, you know, slightly uh, during the fourth quarter and the first quarter of this year. So took it off the table, but could have been that could have been the catastrophe that that would have brought the the rest of the world into a recession, possibly. I mean, there's kind of two strategies: you either slow down and go back backwards in some ways, or you speed up and and. What's interesting for those clean energy advocates in the room, I've been kind of following the hydrogen price. They're they're actually trying to um, accelerate, like cracking ammonia or bringing in hydrogen. But the hydrogen prices in Germany are outrageous. I mean, it's incredible. If you can, if you have hydrogen, you can sell it to the Germans and make make a lot of money. But I think they might be trying to accelerate their energy transition, trying to get to some more stable fuel sources because ammonia is in high sub is everywhere and you can crack it and make ammonia and make hydro- clean hydrogen out of it. That's what's interesting is like maybe Germany is trying to speed up through the transition to maybe avoid the potential nuclear winter. We keep coming back to this. Something's going to happen. There was a study done in kind of late 2022, and I don't know details of the study because I haven't read it because uh, I'm sleeping well at night these days. Good. I didn't need to, but basically talked about potentially over the next three years, Germany's going to be spending 40 to 50% more on energy and just what does yeah. that do to an economy? I, 
just as a side note, this was pretty interesting. This was pretty interesting. Um, I was in Germany last summer and was there four days and that's when energy prices were spiking just right after Putin's invasion. Mm. And German is not my language. I can't even fake it. But a couple of guys knew knew energy and I knew English and I was able to speak some. I was talking about, wow, what about these gasoline prices? Why? What about these energy prices? Not a word. No peep. Nothing. No concern about it whatsoever. And I was wondering, one, do they notice? There was an element of maybe the German government was subsidizing energy, Hmm. so it was somewhat invisible to the consumer. Or, number two, the Germans are just so austere, they may just bite the bullet and do it. You know, and not complain at all. I mean, that's the German character. Yeah, you you did have much more coordinated um, demand response from a policy uh, in response to policies in advance or in front of the the crisis that fortunately was not as acute as it could have been because of the warm weather. Um, but I think you know we'll we'll see heading into twenty twenty four and another winter coming up, how much more awareness there is. I'll be in Germany and Holland and France for part of this summer as well here in a couple of months. So hope to engage uh, a little bit of energy conversation and, and see where where things are. There's one thing interesting about Germany. They have the largest number of like small to mid-sized businesses. And, and it's it, it's unusual. And there's been some great, um, there's some, been some great research on this. But their economy is, is I mean, their economy is just doing better than others in Europe. And primarily it's because they have all these businesses that are, they're not huge, but they do something really well better than anywhere else in the world. Like, for instance, in McDonald's, I think McDonald's, like the dishwashers are all a German manufacturer. That's all they do is industrial dishwashers. There's a lot of that happening in Germany. I'm surprised they're not crying foul over energy prices because it's got to, it's got to be hurting them. For sure. There's our deep dive. Okay, let's go around real quick. Just summarize. Give us a point about Germany. This is our deep dive. I, you know, I think it's, it'll be interesting to watch the deep dive as Germany is accelerating, trying to accelerate its energy transition to avoid potentially going backwards to coal. They have a lot of it, so they could, but I think restarting um, facilities is going to be difficult. Um they have a strong middle class, and that's supporting them sort of, sort of surviving, which I think we're going into, quote, you heard it here first, nuclear winter. I think the Germans are the best off because they have a hardworking people, and and that's the one thing I think they've got going for them. Mark, anything you'd add to that? Yeah, I think they'll, uh, from a political standpoint, will continue to, to push on the accelerator. And... I think they know that there's there's a either a, an apathy or resilience there in in the citizenry. Although I will say that uh, there was a recent referendum in Berlin for Berlin's net neutrality, and it was pushed by some oh, some fringe. Eighty-two percent of the voters did not support. It. Said we're not supporting the 2030 goals for the city of Berlin for the city of Berlin, which is something the UK we'll go fast, did. but not that fast. Yeah, that's right. So I forgot that. That's I, a great point. I, I think, I think Germany continues to separate from the, 
kind of the rethinking that we've seen in other countries um, throughout the EU and in the UK. I, I think Germany is going to be, uh, you know, distant, getting uh, built, putting a bigger gap between where it is pushing down the transition road than than the rest of Europe. I will leave us with one thought that is tinfoil, because that has become my role on BDEs to wear the tinfoil hat. Angela Merkel, she was prime minister when they signed the deal with Nordstrom to uh, to do that, or or anyway, she was definitely for it. I think they signed it with the, the previous uh, prime minister. But anyway, she was very much an advocate of that. She grew up behind the communist bloc in East Germany. Therefore, I, mean, I was she, waiting for the there what, and. Was she Putin's uh, puppet? puppet during that i mean brilliant decisions to lock yourself into russia that was not a smart one clearly clearly you're sleeping well at night is leading to brilliance chuck (laughs) we're gonna watch that we have a lot to watch all right digital outcatters thank you for joining us this week we will be back next week kirk will not make a weird take about the masters i will not make a weird take about angela (laughs) markle again mark is the voice of reason Peace out.